everyone, and welcome back to the Right Life Project podcast. If you're looking for ways to feel happier, more fulfilled, and more at ease in your life, then you're listening to the right podcast. That's what I call a right life. You could think of a right life as one that's as aligned as possible with the uniquely human aspects of yourself, which themselves exist in a configuration that's also unique to you. So you need to consider not just your individual makeup, but also those needs, capacities, strengths, and weaknesses shared by humans in general. Now, last time I kicked off the podcast with the topic of redemption, And as I explained, I started with that topic because redemption and all of its many meanings, including changing for the better and creating value, not only because it's a fundamental concept if your goal is to have a right life, but also because it's universal. No matter what the particular details of your life are, you not only have the ability to experience redemption, but you're hardwired to want it. For these first few podcasts, I'm going to continue addressing what I consider to be foundational, universal topics when it comes to building a rich, fulfilling life. Over time, of course, I'll explore the nuances, like I do on the blog, but I want to make sure that I cover some of the fundamentals up front. So today I'm going to talk about mindfulness, which pertains to every living person because it involves your relationship to your present moment experience. There's nothing more fundamental than that. Whatever dimension of your life you'd like to work on, whether it's the psychological, physical, social, or vocational, your relationship to what you're experiencing can affect your well-being now and in the future. And it also determines how well you're able to respond to what's happening and to make any changes you'd like to make. So it's incredibly important to your efforts to have a right life. Now, chances are you've heard of mindfulness meditation. It's become quite a craze lately, which is both good and bad. It's good in that more people are being exposed to a concept and a practice that can significantly improve their lives, but bad in that the way it's presented is often oversimplified or sometimes just wrong. I've been practicing mindfulness and other forms of meditation for almost 20 years. I'm a mindfulness meditation teacher, and I use it all the time with my psychotherapy and coaching clients. In fact, I wrote a chapter for a textbook about the use of mindfulness in mental health settings, which is scheduled to be published next year. So for me, mindfulness is more than a buzzword. So I'm going to do my best to give you a good, solid understanding of it. Now, If you ask a hundred mindfulness teachers or researchers what is mindfulness, you'll get a hundred different answers. My short one is that mindfulness is the quality of being both aware and accepting of what is going on in your moment-to-moment experience of life. Here are some others. John Kabat-Zinn has a longer one. He's the person who developed mindfulness-based stress reduction and really paved the way for the widespread use of mindfulness in mental health settings that we see today. He says mindfulness is the awareness that emerges through paying attention on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally to the unfolding of experience moment by moment. One of my teachers, who I trained with at UCLA, Diana Winston, 
says that it's paying attention to present moment experiences with curiosity and an openness to being with what is. Marv Belzer, another teacher of mine, puts it even more succinctly, remembering to pay attention. So perhaps you're getting the idea. It sounds pretty simple, right? You might be thinking, okay, got it, pay attention. I already pay attention. See you at the next podcast. But hang on, mindfulness may sound simple, and it is, but just like most things that are good for you, it can be difficult to put into practice in the way we're talking about it. And you're probably actually aware of what's going on in your moment-to-moment experience much less often than you may think. Have you ever had the experience of walking down the street to the store and then arriving there but having no particular memory of the walk? Or driving somewhere and sort of coming to when you've arrived at your destination, somehow having driven all the way there without really being engaged in that experience? Instead, you may have been replaying an argument from yesterday in your mind, or making plans for tomorrow, or imagining the conversation you'd have with your friend when you arrived at her house. Your brain put your body on autopilot so that it could do other things. It retained just the bare minimum of attention necessary to keep you from driving into a tree, hopefully. Of course you've had these experiences, right? I'll call this state where you lack present moment awareness, mindlessness, which is the opposite of mindfulness. There's a lot to be said about why your mind does this, and I'll talk more about that in future talks. In a nutshell, though, left to its own devices, your brain's number one priority is your physical survival, and it determines what's good or bad for your survival on a very simple basis. Your brain is pretty simple-minded, as it were. Pleasant experiences are good for your survival, and unpleasant experiences are bad for your survival. Makes sense, right? So your brain reviews the past for unpleasant experiences so it can figure out how to avoid them happening again. And it imagines things that can go wrong in the future, trying to figure out how to avoid them. It just wants everything to turn out pleasant for you. Now sometimes it'll daydream about positive memories and fantasies, and when it does that, it's often because the present moment just isn't doing it for your brain. It's not pleasant enough. You're not having a good enough time, so it will help you out with some pleasant thoughts. Of course, rationally, you know that your brain is fighting a losing battle by pursuing this goal. There's no way that you will ever only have pleasant experiences. But that doesn't stop your brain from trying, because these tendencies of your brain are deeply hardwired. They're primitive, but very strong because of their connection to your survival. So, your brain uses rumination as a tool to try to pursue the 100% pleasure goal, which keeps you jumping from foot to foot, avoiding all the unpleasantness you can, and collecting all the pleasantness. This game plan lies at the root of a number of problems, in addition to mindlessness. But for our purposes today, the point is that whichever direction your mind takes you when you're ruminating, whether it's planning, fantasizing, or remembering, whether it's positive or negative, Whatever the case, it's away from authentic contact with the present. And the end result is the same. Your actual experience takes the back seat, and you start living in an alternate, imaginary world. That's not really overstating it, either. 
Take, for instance, the visualization exercises that athletes use. A basketball player can imagine himself shooting perfect free throws and then go to a court and actually shoot them better in real life. Now, this is real. The pros do it. You've probably had the experience of remembering an experience and feeling your body respond as if you were experiencing it again. This can happen with good or bad memories, but remember, your brain isn't predisposed to dwell on good times. Perhaps remembering an argument you had with a good friend keeps coming up for you. You might notice it affecting your heart rate or blood pressure or putting you in an angry, irritable, or sad mood. If this happens while you're driving home or walking to the store, sure, your body gets to where it's going just fine. But now you've been affected negatively by something that wasn't really happening. What's more, you were oblivious to the things that really were happening in the present moment that weren't bad at all. Real life, pleasant things, and neutral things. Maybe the sunshine or breeze on your face or the sensation of your feet pressing against the sidewalk. Of all the nearly infinite possibilities of things to pay attention to, only a small fraction of which are actually negative at any given moment, your mind chose to keep you tied up to a bad memory. What kind of raw deal is that? Your mind's natural tendencies, left unchecked, come at quite a cost to your actual lived experience. Because, let's be clear, the only moment you have, the only moment you ever have had or ever will have, is the present moment. The past is a series of present moments that no longer exist anywhere but in your imagination. It's a series of electrical impulses in your brain that fire a certain way and emerge as a story that you tell yourself. The past is no more or less than that. The future is similar, except it's even more removed from reality because it's 100% conjecture about possible present moments that may happen someday. The only ground you ever actually have to stand on is this present moment. Right now. And now. And if you aren't living here in the present moment, then where are you living? Maybe the better question is, are you living? So, mindfulness is about, in a very real sense, I think, reclaiming your life by practicing doing something that your mind tends not to do on its own unless it has to, which is observing and accepting whatever your experience of this moment is, whether it's positive, negative, or neutral. This isn't an esoteric concept. Mindfulness is right here in front of you, and you've always had access to it, too. When you first learned to tie your shoes, you were probably absorbed in that task, aware of every little movement in your fingers and what the laces were doing. But how long has it been since you actually noticed the texture of your shoelaces as you tied them? Decades? Even though you've been tying your shoes every day? Your brain mastered that one a long time ago, and since then, the act of tying your shoes has probably been co-opted by your mind as a time for rumination. On the other hand, you may be lost in thought as you're driving down the street, but when a child runs out in front of your car, your brain is there for you. In less than the blink of an eye, you're back online to tend to the emergency. And in that instant, your brain can even slow down the perception of time to help you out. 
So we're not talking about something that you used to have as a child, but no longer have. Now it's true that children tend to be more mindful. As adults, we collect more and more experiences to ruminate about and more and more problems to try to solve. Plus, as we grow, our brains develop the capacity for the highest levels of abstract thought, which unfortunately comes at the cost of moving us away from a more mindful set point. But full 100% awareness is always right there. So close, but due to these deep-seated tendencies of your mind, it can seem far away. So cultivating more moments of mindful connection with your life can bring you back to life. Also, from a more present-oriented, accepting stance, you tend to be less reactive and better able to respond wisely to the situations that crop up for you. That's because when you're mindless, on autopilot, you're defaulting to habitual reactions which, like your mindlessness itself, are oriented towards short-term pleasure-seeking and avoidance of discomfort. And there's a lot to say about this, but suffice it to say, when you're pursuing instant gratification or relief, you're usually trading off your long-term well-being. There are other more concrete benefits of mindfulness that have been demonstrated by research. Research into mindfulness essentially began in the 1980s with John Kabat-Zinn, who I mentioned before. He was the director of the pain clinic at the University of Massachusetts, and he was also a mindfulness meditator. He decided to see what would happen if he taught people with chronic pain to meditate. And what he found was that their subjective experience of their pain, for instance, if they rated it on a scale of 1 to 10, improved significantly after they went through a mindfulness training program. Since then, researchers have found that mindfulness practice helps people's mood, anxiety, stress levels, immune system response, among many other benefits. It's applied in different ways in a number of mental health interventions, too, to help people who have experienced trauma, depression, anxiety, addictions. The list goes on. So there are plenty of upsides to mindfulness practice and few downsides. When people express reluctance to give it a try, it's usually due to one misunderstanding or another about what mindfulness entails. For instance, some people think that mindfulness practice means trying to make their minds go blank or to stop thinking, but that's not it. The goal isn't to stop thinking, but essentially to disentangle yourself from your thoughts and the artificial world that they create. The goal of mindfulness practice is just to practice paying attention to what's going on in your experience right now, and your thoughts and emotions aren't excluded from that. They're just one part of your experience that you can be aware of. When it comes to thoughts, you could think of the difference between mindfulness and mindlessness this way. When you're replaying a memory, making plans, fantasizing, or having other thoughts, it's like your mind is playing a movie for you. You might be able to see and hear thoughts or events taking place in your mind's eye, and your mind's ear. When you're mindless, you forget that this is going on. You become disoriented, and before you know it, you've gone and stepped right through the screen into the movie. You're no longer observing what's going on. You've become one with the fantasy. It's so weird, but we do this all the time. 
Mindfulness practice isn't about turning off the projector. It's about remembering that you're watching a movie, that there isn't anything substantial up there. It's just a screen. The substance is right where you are, in your seat. Another concern people express sometimes is, wait a minute, I need to be able to think about the past. My brain knows what it's doing. Thinking about the past is how I learn from mistakes. And I'm a busy person. I need to plan my day and chart a course for my life, so I have to ponder the future. I'll never get anywhere if I'm just living for the moment. Okay, so to that I have a few responses. First of all, mindfulness doesn't mean living for the moment and not caring what the future holds. Actually, that's the very thing that the primitive part of your brain does in its pursuit of momentary pleasure and relief. No, mindfulness is about living in the moment, which is different. You're going to arrive in the future one way or the other. Which sounds better? Just waking up there one day, not really knowing how you got there or where all the time went? Or having been present for the journey so that you're actually better able to plan and work toward the future you want in a wise, grounded way? Second, rest assured, by practicing mindfulness meditation, you are in zero danger of losing your ability to think about the past and future. You also won't lose your ability to tie your shoes absentmindedly. You couldn't forget how to think or tie your shoes if you tried. People don't usually express these concerns after the first time or two they actually try to be mindful, and they realize, for one, how challenging it can be, and two, that mindfulness doesn't entail restricting or eliminating your mental abilities. We'll give it a try in a minute, and you can see for yourself. Third, your mind spends much more time than it needs to spend in order to accomplish the learning from the past and planning for the future that you need to do. That horrible argument you had where your feelings got hurt, that you keep replaying over and over in your mind, remembering what was said to you, imagining what you could have said back, feeling lousy all over again. Maybe you'll find some benefit from that the first few times especially if you use remembering the event as a learning and growing experience to examine what you could have done differently and will do differently the next time you're in such a situation. Or if you're working with traumatic memories with a therapist like I do with my clients. If you're intentionally doing things like that and aware that you're doing them while you're doing them, then you're being mindful while remembering. There's nothing harmful or wrong with that at all. The problem is when your mind takes it upon itself to strap you into your theater seat and show you the same disturbing movie 500 times. You aren't learning anything new the 501st time you replay that event that you didn't already learn by the 500th time, or even the 20th time. Your mind is returning to it because it was a painful experience. It doesn't want you to suffer that way again, and there's probably some healing to be done there but your mind is pretty ham-handed. By returning to the scene of the crime again and again with no actual therapeutic work taking place, you're being re-traumatized. And the longer it goes on, the more likely it is to continue because those neural pathways are getting more and more worn in. 
The human mind is a wonderful thing. We have the ability to not just remember and fantasize, but to ascribe meaning to past events and future plans, to ponder our place in the world, to go for a walk, to balance our checkbook, to plan our day. None of these things are in competition with mindfulness. You can bring present moment awareness to any activity, so you don't need to worry about missing out on anything. Quite to the contrary, you'll miss out on less. One other topic that comes up from time to time is that mindfulness meditation has its origins in Buddhism. And some people wonder whether mindfulness is a religion or religious. The answer is no, it isn't. Even within Buddhism, there isn't anything metaphysical about mindfulness. It's taught alongside other meditation practices that help you develop concentration. And both of those are just ways to come into closer contact with the way things actually are right now for you. It's a very matter-of-fact practice that many people find helps them feel more at ease with the experience of their lives and all those other benefits I mentioned, regardless of what particular spiritual beliefs, if any, they adhere to. Mindfulness is equal opportunity. You could think of it this way. No matter how you believe you happen to come into ownership of a mind that is able to pay attention to what's going on, you did. And mindfulness is just exercising that muscle. So by now I hope you have a good general understanding of what mindfulness is about and why it can be a helpful state of mind to cultivate. It's a good place to start, but just understanding these things intellectually isn't enough. To really understand what mindfulness is, and to obtain any of its benefits, you actually have to practice it and experience it firsthand. Just like there's only one way you'll learn how to ride a bike, by climbing aboard. But the good news is that this relieves you of any need to believe a word I've said. In fact, I encourage you not to. I encourage you to see for yourself. So why don't we give it a try? If you're new to mindfulness, this can be your first taste. And if you already practice, then you'll have a five-minute meditation today that you probably didn't see coming. So a good way to start is to first attend to your posture. It's good to sit upright in your chair. Not bolt upright so that you're uncomfortable, but so that your spine is straight and erect serving its intended purpose of supporting the weight of your upper body, which also opens up your chest and enables you to breathe a little easier than if you're slumped. So allow your eyes to close and bring your attention to a place where your breath, the sensations of your breathing, are most readily apparent to you. And for many people, this is in the nostrils or the, the sinuses, but uh, if that doesn't work for you and your breath seems most apparent to you in the movement of your chest or the feeling of air moving down your throat, then you can use those as well. But settle in with the physical sensations of your breathing. Zooming in on those sensations so that 
you can start to get curious about the different qualities that comprise them. Paying attention to things like the texture that you may be able to detect in your breath, or the temperature. Noticing whether it's deep or shallow, fast or slow. See if you can explore these sensations with sort of a child's curiosity, as if you've never really paid attention to the sensations of your breathing before. Now, as you're doing this, you might notice that your mind doesn't want to stay put. It might run off and into thought, or fantasy, or memory. And if you notice that that's happened, then as soon as you become aware that that's happened, just make a mental note to yourself. Ah, I was thinking, remembering, or whatever the case may be. And then just gently bring your attention back to those sensations of your breath. Noticing if they've changed at all since when you first started paying attention to them. The depth, the pace, the temperature, the texture. And by texture, I mean, does your breath feel smooth or rough? And if it's hard to tell, then zoom in on it. See if you can focus your attention even more on those characteristics. Really get curious about it. Explore them. And again, if you find that your mind has run away, just repeat the same process that we did the first time. As soon as you become aware that you've drifted off and you sort of pop out into awareness, just make a mental note to yourself. Oh, my mind was wandering. Okay. And then gently, with a kind attitude toward yourself, bring your attention back to those sensations of breathing. There's no need at all to chastise yourself for your mind wandering. We're not learning how to never have our mind wander. What we're doing is practicing coming back to a grounded present moment awareness when we realize that it has wandered. 
That's all. So be gentle with yourself. Your mind might run away the very moment you put it down somewhere, and that's okay. Just keep acknowledging it and gently bringing your awareness back to the object of the meditation, which in this case is your breath. And in a moment, I'll ring a bell to bring this meditation exercise to an end. Well, how was that for you? Did you have the experience of your mind running off right away? Or did it stay put for a little bit and then run away? What's interesting is sometimes people think that they were fully present during a meditation, but don't realize that they were actually lost in thought about meditation. Remember that a thought is a thought. So even if you're sitting there thinking, wow, this is great, I need to meditate more, those are still thoughts. Not that it's wrong to have them, it's just that your mind is good at being stealthy and you want to practice refining your ability to notice what it's up to, along with the other parts of your experience. Remember, the goal is just to climb out of the movie screen, sit down in your seat, and watch. Now, in terms of your practice at home, you have some options. There are guided meditations online, including at the Right Life Project website. And there are in-person meditation groups that you can join. With the growing popularity of mindfulness, groups have been popping up all over. It can be very helpful to have a group of people to practice with regularly. Sometimes people feel like a weirdo for meditating, and being around other people can help with that. It can help you feel less isolated. It can help you stay motivated to practice, Plus, a good meditation teacher can answer the questions that you will inevitably have. They can also help you personalize your practice and introduce you to new ways to try meditating. Ultimately, you don't need to have someone guiding you in order to meditate. Remember, your awareness of the present moment is always right there, just a slight shift and a split second away. So you can bring present moment awareness to any activity you're doing. You don't need to be sitting on top of a mountain somewhere. You can be chopping onions in the kitchen, eating, talking to someone, or at a rock concert. Just see what you can become aware of, good, bad, or indifferent, when you fully drop into the experience of what you're doing. That might be a broad, open awareness of whatever thoughts, feelings, mental images, and sensory events are happening. Or you might choose to narrow your window of awareness. For instance, just paying close attention to your breath, like we just did. 
or to the physical sensations on the soles of your feet as you walk. There are unlimited possibilities. What I can specifically recommend, though, is that you give it a good college try. Don't just base your decision of whether to practice meditating on the five-minute one we just did. The reality is that sometimes your meditation experience is going to be unpleasant. You might be sitting with a mind that's running all over the place or resting on unpleasant memories, and it may not feel good. Other times you'll feel great. It will be a peaceful, grounding experience that will provide clear benefits to your well-being right away. And you'll have experiences everywhere in between. And that's really the point, to become better aware of your experience of life in all kinds of situations, not just the times when you're feeling good or bad. If you only want to meditate when you feel calm, or you only want to feel calm while meditating, that's just a manifestation of that primitive, unreasonable part of your brain that wants things to be pleasant all the time. The very thing that causes you so many problems. So, I recommend that you try meditating and try to commit to doing it for a while before making the determination of whether it's a worthwhile addition to your life. Even if you just do it for five minutes a day or 15 minutes three or four times a week, that's fine. Some is better than none, and the more the better. Just give it a shot and see for yourself what happens. I'll give you a sneak preview of what can happen, though. By learning to turn toward and accept whatever moments you're having, you can begin to condition your mind in a different way. Over time, you can appreciate positive events more fully and loosen your resistance to the negative ones, including the inevitable loss of things that you like. You'll suffer less that way because clinging desperately to pleasant circumstances of your life hoping they never change, just hurts you more when they inevitably do. And feeling aversive to the unpleasant things that you'll inevitably experience just makes them hurt more than they have to. Just ask those chronic pain patients I told you about that John Kabat-Zinn worked with. In a more mindful state, you're better able to observe not only the physical events of your life, but also to see your feelings, impulses, and thoughts, including the ones you have about yourself, for the transitory phenomena that they are. With sustained practice, you can improve your ability to respond wisely and intentionally to them instead of just reacting, which in turn will enable you to make better and healthier decisions in all areas of your life. And that is why mindfulness is an integral part of the Right Life Project, because it's supportive of all your other efforts to build a right life. So, I'll stop there for today. There is more to say about mindfulness, of course, and today I touched on a number of points that will make for great discussions of their own down the road. In the meantime, please feel free to visit the website at www.rightlifeproject.com and poke around the articles there. If you search for mindfulness or click on the mindfulness article tag, you'll find a lot of related material. You can also try out some different meditations on the Meditate page, too. And I'll also put up a transcript or show notes with some links to research articles, which 
uh, you'll be able to access from the page for this podcast, which is podcast two. If you would, please take a moment to leave a comment for this podcast on the RLP website, what you thought about it, what your experience of the meditation was, or any questions you may have. I'll be happy to answer anything I can, and it would be great to have a dialogue with you listeners. Also, if you feel so moved, I'd be very grateful for a five-star rating from you in iTunes, because ultimately that will help me get the RLP message out to a wider audience. And finally, if you haven't already, please visit the website and sign up for the email list. Again, that's www.rightlifeproject.com. There are announcements coming shortly that you won't want to miss, and being on the email list guarantees that you won't miss them. So, thank you very much for joining me, and until next time, I wish you all the best in your pursuit of your right life. Right Life.